October 1969, since it is now conclusively proved that it is not only possible, but uh, highly probable that uh, most people catch their colds by electronic means. That means you can catch the cold I got by listening to me, friend. If you sit next to the radio, you're liable to come up with some fascinating diseases. Bring it up there, there. It's only colds, by the way. I just said other diseases have to be communicated the old way. to the age of reptiles for some reason. It says, uh, Dear Mr. Shepard, the enclosed postage stamp, which I received on a letter the other day, struck me as something you'd want to know about. Oh, I've been getting ones addressed to reptiles for years. It says, I find the idea of a stamp in tribute to the dinosaurs slightly mind-boggling. <laughs> it's true, but if the U.S. government will entertain such an idea, I can see no end to the possibilities. What about an impressive four-color honoring the garter snake? Or perhaps a commemorative issue portraying our early ancestor, Pithecanthropus erectus. True, I mean, <laughs> it is strange. I don't know about these stamps. You know, I have, I've had a theory for a long time, and I'm telling you, I just don't, uh, I have not yet seen any reason why I should change it. And the theory is that as a country, whatever country it might be, A, B, C, or D, as they get more nervous about their identity, in other words, as they're beginning to decline or never made it at all, the stamps get more spectacular. I'm serious. I'm very serious about this. Have you noticed that, that, that it's always the guy who's downtrodden on, and who, who is the lowest rung of the society who makes a big fetish of fancy clothes? Oh, yeah, indeed. I mean, uh, the average clerk who works, you know, in the number three checkout counter at Christides. He's got seven thousand dollars worth of clothing in his uh, in his wardrobe, and rich guys never do that. I mean, I've I've known really rich guys. You ever known a rich guy, Matt? Really a rich one, a real one? I mean, a real rich person. I mean, really, I mean, big time rich. I'm not talking about somebody with a couple of bucks. I'm talking about rich. Well, I have, you know. And I'll tell you, this one rich guy I know who's so famous, he owns a whole stable of horses. You know that whole bit, and. This guy wears a pair all the time. Every time you see him, he's got a coat that he must have had when he was in Dartmouth in 1932. And it looks like a compost heap. Yeah, and it's got little leather patches on the bottom, you know, where the, where the rabbit dung usually comes out of the bottom of the compost heap. And he's got this old coat that's all he ever wears, and he's got a pair of chinos, which he received free when he became a lieutenant colonel or something in the army, when he was, you know, and they gave him these uh, suntans. So a guy wears, you know. Yeah. He doesn't have to prove anything. And and uh, the guy that takes care of his, uh, let's say, takes care of the firewood in his uh, fireplace in his summer place in Maine has $200 suits. You know, he needs to prove something there. And I think <laughs> I think this is true about stamps. The other day, I want, I, I want to tell you this now. I, I received probably the most spectacular stamp I've ever received in my life the other day from a country that I'm sure that very few of them have never, actually never heard of this country. This stamp was about yay big, man. It must have been about, well, about the size of the average bicycle playing card. And it was printed in like 26 colors. You could have framed it. Beautiful. In fact, I've got it down on my desk there. I'm thinking of having it, you know, putting a map and all that. It's beautiful. And it's a, it's a reproduction of a painting by Michelangelo, believe it or not. Fantastic uh, stamp, beautiful stamp. And you think it's kind of a, you know, look at the stamp, you think, gee, it's, it's kind of bad that they, uh, 
you know, they mess it all up by canceling it, you know, putting those black things across the front. Well, I'll guarantee most of you have never heard of the country that it came from. Have you ever heard of Grenada? Not Granada, Grenada. Grenada is about, oh, I'd say 17 feet by 34 feet. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. Grenada, where is it? Grenada is on the Windward Islands. If you were to t if you were to, to uh, head south from Florida, let's say let's say that you uh, you were flying and you flew down uh, all the way down the cur the curving uh, the, the the whole group of islands that go down through the Caribbean they they curve on there's Bermuda and uh, you know you go down through all those islands until you get down way down by South America you go down places like uh, you know the uh, Spice Islands and the Windward Islands and the Leeward Islands and all those islands down there. Well, Grenada is about 75 miles off the coast of Venezuela. It's probably one of the most beautiful islands in the world. Unbelievable island. And uh, I got a letter from a guy I know down there. And the stamp is about the size of the island. Fantastic stamp, you know. <laughs> Which proves something, you know. I don't know what it proves. But anyway, he's got a kind of a nice uh, idea, this uh, writer here. He says, how about a commemorative issue portraying our early ancestor, Pythiocanthropus erectus? The suggestion of mine that I think will really interest you, Shepard, is a stamp in honor of our venerable friend, the cockroach. I can envision a tasteful six-center or perhaps a large rectangular airmail featuring an engraving of the roach's finely chiseled features. The caption might read, the cockroach always there. <laughs> That's true. Or, quote, the noble roach, our constant companion. Animal lovers everywhere should write the post office department urging such a project. Hey, wouldn't that be great? Let's do that. How about everybody writing to the post office department and asking for a commemorative stamp commemorating the cockroach? Why not? I mean, if you can commemorate the age of reptiles. <laughs> I mean, you know, they make it look like fun. You remember when you were a kid, you used to be interested in dinosaurs? All kids get interested in dinosaurs at one point or another. Didn't you, Matt? Of course, every kid does. You know, and I used to read all about the dinosaurs. And my favorite, of course, was Tyrannosaurus rex. That's that big, you know, that big varmint, the one with all the teeth. <laughs> about three stories high. And uh, <laughs> he walked on his hind feet, I think, didn't he? Yeah, and he had, uh, Tyrannosaurus rex, and he was a meat eater. And uh, it took a lot of meat to keep him going. Oh, you know, yeah, he's three stories high. You don't stoke that guy up on McDonald Big Boys, you know. He he, he moved, man. And uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, I'll tell you, the world the world is getting crazy, I'll tell you, when it comes to animals. What is it that New Yorkers hate the most, man, really, among the animal world? Now, come on, be honest. It isn't dogs. No, there are more dogs in this town than people. What is it they really hate? Pigeons, Right? I mean, there are editorials in the paper every week about how rotten pigeons are. You know, get rid of them crummy pigeons. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know how, ex how to explain this to you, but did you see the Times last week, the Sunday Times? You know, one of these elegant places where they sell uh, $74 lamps and $200 bath mats, you know, elegant uh, carved uh, stone things and stuff. It's an art-type house. Well, do you know what you can buy now? A life-size beautiful iron pigeons you can buy now who the, you know who the hell wants a pair of iron pigeons but you can buy them now this is probably the the uh, the, the final uh, the final statement of an affluent society when you start making replicas of the thing you hate most and buy it like for example buying a pigeon I can imagine people buying little gold cockroaches you know lay around the house and <laughs> I'm sorry, Don Cricky there. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can buy two iron pigeons, and they're, they're life-size, eight inches long, it says, and the pair is twenty-one fifty. Uh, you know, we're, I, I just think that... that well, would you please give me a little of that to salute the beauty music, Matthew, please? Man is continually searching for God knows what. Bring it up there, Lodge, man. Our beauty, our truth... Ah, loveliness, we salute thee tonight. Blood of tea. Bring it up large, man. That's it. 
friend, we have to ask you a question here. This is a rhetorical question, so don't rush to your phone and answer it. What is it that the average klutz walking around loves the most in his life? What is it? Now, come on, be honest. <laughs> is it his chick? I don't think so. Come, she's around. But what is it that the average walking around Joe really flips over? You can't think? Oh, come on. I say examine your own soul, friend. Don't look around. Look at yourself. Well, we're talking about the average, you know, the average walking around yuck. What is it? Why, of course. His car. A man's love for his car knows no bounds. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking for myself. I'm not talking for any of you out there, see. So don't think I'm putting you down. Oh, yes. On those, you know, those golden moments when me and my car have total communion. You know, that, that, that fantastic moment after you've washed your car and it's just glistening in the sun there. And you've got this can of Simon Eyes. And you've just finished the job. What is more beautiful? What feeling is more truly erotic than the feeling of seeing the sunbeams bounce off the hood of your car after you've Simonized it? This is true beauty, friends. This is true love. I mean, and you'll work like three days to do it. I mean, you'll, you'll wear out your fingers and your hands and your your wrists are hurting and your back is hurting and everything after you've Simonized your car. Would you do that for anybody you know? Now, say, for example, would you rub your chick's head for three straight days just because she wants you to rub her head? By, by the end of the first five minutes, say, come on, my hands are getting tired. Do you say that to that lovely Camaro of yours? Of course not. <laughs> yes. The GTO that stands in the driveway represents man's higher aspiration towards beauty and truth. Don't put it down, Matt. I'm just telling you that, what, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Bring it up big. I'll tell you one of the reasons why, I think, because the car represents freedom and flight. Whereas the chick usually represents the opposite. <laughs> and man is constantly torn. I'm talking about men, not mankind. Men, men. Walk around males. He's constantly torn between the curse of the nest and the desire to have a nest and the deep urge to flee, to run free like the antelope over the plains. <laughs> I can hear all the women all over the place. What's this nut talking about? And their husbands, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what he's talking about. He's just filling, you know. <laughs> like hell, you don't know what I'm talking about, right, man? <laughs> and we'd like to salute uh, something that I think is going to sweep our country eventually. I've had a thesis for a long time that the civilization of the 21st century, of which we are just beginning to enter, is seeping eastward instead of the other old way. 19th century and 20th century life went from east to west, and now it's coming back like a great wave. And the 21st century is coming to us from out of the golden hills of California. I read to you a special bulletin from the Los Angeles Times. On a gentle rise just outside this old Santa Fe trail town, residents have buried their dead for nearly a century. Isn't that lovely? Valley View Cemetery is a lush green island amid dusty copper wheat fields, a legacy from early settlers upon this patch of dry, windswept Kansas plain. Generations ago, pioneer Garden City, Kansas residents set cottonwoods and elms in the hostile cemetery soil and then painstakingly nursed the trees to full foliage with scarce, life-giving water. 
But none could have foretold that their burying ground one day would accommodate a peculiar monument to the age when man discovered still another way of searching for beauty and of killing himself, the automobile. It is one of the most conventional tombstones ever erected. Unconventional is the word. It's a misprint there. A 1924 four-cylinder Chevrolet motor block set atop a crude concrete slab. Here's a picture of it, man. It's beautiful. It's right in the middle of all that. Until a tornado flayed the region in 1967, almost none of today's Garden City residents knew of the tombstone's existence, and most who did had forgotten. The twister uprooted a tree whose lower branches had swallowed the marker. Only then, with the tombstone exposed, did a few old-timers recall its poignant history. The motor block marks the grave of 16-year-old Mitchell Runnels, Kansas' earliest traffic victim. <laughs> That's strange. The boy and his family, his mother, his father, and brother moved to Kansas from Colorado in the 20s. The boy flipped over cars, then a rarity, and yearned for one of his own. From money, he earned at odd jobs. He scrimped and saved and bought a second-hand 1924 Chevy. It was the center of his life. He kept the cartoon to perfection. And then, on a windy, wintry afternoon, February 16, 1927, Mitchell arrived at the Kemper Auto Electric Service in downtown Garden City to work on his engine. I don't rightly remember what he was up to, said Lee Kemper, then the shop owner who's still living in the area. I guess he was just putting in new parts, maybe. He always was fooling around with the engine to make it run slicker. Mitchell left for home at dusk. He didn't make it. The Santa Fe chief struck the boy and his beloved machine at a rail crossing. And that was the end of the saga. A good son to his father and his mother and his presence will be missed, is all the obituary said six days later. Because cars were rare, towing equipment was non-existent. So the wreckage remained by the tracks for several days. And sightseers came from miles around to see it. All that was left intact of Mitchell's car was the motor block. And it just sat there by the side of the road. Well, I'm going to take that motor and make him a tombstone. Kemper remembered the boy's father, George, saying, and he did. The boy now lays under his tombstone. The block of a 1924 Chevrolet two-door. The father fixed the slab and put the motor block on top and gave it a coat of silver paint. And then he and the family left town the next day and never have been heard from since. Now there is a saga. Yeah, that's a saga there. <laughs> you know, you know, I, I, I keep that up there, man. I think that's... that's uh, no, we'll just do, you keep it in the, in the, in the bay and say, hey, listen, uh, now, you know, you, you sit out there and you chuckle at that, but uh, I think that eventually, and I really do, I think that eventually, did you hear about the woman in Brooklyn here a couple of, uh, I think it was about a year ago, I think it was in Brooklyn, that uh, she had this car like for like 30 years or something, you know, some old car she really dug, and uh, finally it's uh, on its last legs, forget it, it's not going to go anymore. So what did she do? She had it made into one of these blocks. You know where they take it and they, they scrunch it together? And uh, she had it made into... <laughs> she loved this car. See, so she wasn't going to let anybody just take it out of the junkyard, you know, and saw it up and all that stuff. So they made it into a block. They scrunched it together. And now she's got it in her backyard on a pedestal. You know, her old 1937 Willie's Night. And uh, she goes out there and she's, yeah, she puts flowers by. <laughs> well, now, wait a minute. You know, this urge is very strong. Now, you're, you're sitting there laughing, and yet I'll guarantee you, every last one of you, if you're, you know, a male type, 
Every last one of you has felt a, a terrible twinge when you get rid of your car. Yeah, you do. I mean, you you, you feel like you, you, you've uh, you've let your old buddy down, and uh, there you are, callously. It's like selling your grandmother. You're callously, uh, <laughs> you know that that car. You're just leaving it on some cold, unfriendly used car lot, and uh, God knows who's going to drive it and kick it around. Well, this is a this is a common feeling, and I'm in fact I remember, you know, I had a I had a terrible experience that way one time. The first car that I ever owned, and by the way, that is a real, I think that's a, a genuine uh, social technological trauma for every male. Now, I'm not saying this is true. I mean, it may be true of women, too. I don't know. But I, I'm, I'm saying, and by the way, that immediately gets all kinds of angry letters. What do you mean? Women are human beings, too. Of course they're human beings. Nobody argues that. But their drives are very different from that of men. And, and their aesthetics are very different, too. And uh, in spite of what women lib says, it's true. And I, I, uh, I can only say that, that I speak for males when I say that uh, one of the great moments in my life came when I, when I got my first car. Absolutely. Do you remember your first car, man? What was it? Plymouth, 51. Can you see it in your mind? Close your eyes, men, out there right this moment. Give me a little of that beauty music, friend. A little of that, man. Just a little beauty music. I want, I want a little, uh, little listener participation here. Now, I want all of you out there, you male types, to close your eyes for just one moment. We always talk about great loves that man has. Romeo and Juliet, Tristan and Isolde, John and Yoko, all the great cosmic lovers of the world. <laughs> and we always talk of our early loves, our own early loves. I'll bet damn few of you can ever remember the first girl you ever actually dated. I mean, never actually did. You know, you went out. I remember the girl I dated. I, I don't remember. In fact, I, I, I don't remember the name of the girl that I took to my junior prom. I remember she was short and fat. That's all I really remember of her. Oh, yes, her name was Alice something. Alice. It's some ridiculous name like Longnecker or something like that. But I'll tell you what I do remember. And I want all of you right now at this moment to join me in a, in a, a small prayer. Just a small 20th century prayer. I want you to all bow your heads for just a moment. Close your eyes and picture your first car. Little music map there. You see it there? There she stands. Christine, in your memory. Glistening. With a hard-earned coat of simonized. I want you to imagine you're at her best on a Saturday like after you've worked for seven hours and cleaning it. You've vacuumed out the inside the whole bit. You've even polished the head off. And you've taken a can of kerosene and waste and you've cleaned off the air filter and the oil filter. Look at it, look at it. You've even cleaned the Yes, you've even cleaned the magneto and the cylinder heads. You've taken off the bowl of the carburetor and emptied the glop out. And there she stands. Think about it. That's it. There will never be another car in your life like that. That was your first car. Now, now, I want to ask you, probably, this is WOR New York, and I want to ask you something probably <clears throat> that could be unpleasant to think about. Where is that car tonight? Is 
Does that bother you? <laughs> it does, me too. <laughs> Where is that car tonight? And you callously driving around in this fake phony. This car that you're pretending belongs to you. Where is that car tonight? Well, you know, I, I remember... I don't know why I got on this subject tonight. I mean, the idea of iron pigeons and and the 1924 Chevy blocks. But uh, I I uh, think that uh, that the that the real that the real experiences we have rarely get written up. I mean, you know, you, I I read fiction, I read the novels, and I go to movies and stuff, and uh, you know, just like anybody else does. And I don't think that the things that really are are really important in most people's lives over the span of their life is ever hardly ever written about. Really. For example, I'll give you an example, just, just to take a, a common life experience. Now, all of you remember as a kid moving into a new house or a different house. You must remember that. Have you ever seen a movie that even touched on that? I have never. Have you ever read a short story that even touched on it? I can't recall any. And yet I'm sure this is one of the great... I'll, I'll never forget the great fantastic trauma that I had when uh, we moved from Chicago. I was a kid, a little kid, you know. And I'm living in Chicago. And uh, Chicago's a whole thing. You know, it's like New York. I mean, it's a, it's a whole city. And uh, it, there's a whole way of life. There's a, there's a feeling in the air. And one day, I don't remember what led up to it. I was very small. In fact, I wasn't even going to school yet. I don't recall what led up to it. I just remember one day <laughs> there was a big truck. I remember the big truck. And uh, we rode out in the back of this. It was a moving van. And they put all our stuff in the truck. And uh, the next thing I knew, I'm in a totally different scene. I mean, it was... It was amazing because I had never lived in a place or even thought of a place where there were spaces between the houses. I remember seeing spaces between the houses, which really threw me. I mean, you know, in Chicago, everything was, was like a concrete jungle, that's all. And the next thing I know, there's space between houses. And not only that, there's prairies and, and, and woods and stuff. And it was a wild scene. And, and all the kids that I knew in the neighborhood there, immediately I got to know about three kids that lived in our block there. All of them seemed to know about all this. They didn't. They weren't surprised that there was sand and weeds and garter snakes and stuff like that. But this has always remained with me as one of the big moments of my life. Suddenly moving into a new scene, and I've never seen uh, anybody write about it. I don't think Mr. Uh, Roth mentioned that in Portnoy's complaint, did he? <laughs> you know, but uh, and Freud doesn't either. But I, I think one of the great moments that everybody carries with them, among other things, little serious, you know, things you've already discussed with other guys. Now, Matt here got a 51 Plymouth. Now, how did you decide to get that Plymouth, Matt? That particular car? Yeah, well, there was a lot of other cheap cars, too. You didn't think of it as cheap when you bought it, I can tell you that. <laughs> In other words, why that specific one? That specific car. Well, I'll tell you. I remember. I remember me. My my scene when I was I was 16 when I got the first car that I ever owned. And I can understand this guy. You know that they they bury him with a with a with a block of a Chevy <laughs> as his monument. That I remember when I was when I was 16. See, in in the, the state where I lived, I was in Indiana. You have to be 16 to get a driver's license. Now. That was a, you know, that was a watershed period in anybody's life. You know, the minute you get your driver's license, that's a, you know, tremendous moment in your life. There, there were two big things that you could get when, uh, when I was a kid at that time. One was the driver's license. The other one was the work permit. You could get a work permit, which meant, <laughs> I don't know, I meant you could, uh, you could go and list as a slave, I guess, but, uh, <laughs> which is what I did. Nevertheless, uh, uh, that that sixteen, I got my I got my uh, my driver's license, and boy, I had been saving for about a year before to get a car. Well, the old man, you know, of course, the old man was just like you know, like fathers are today. You know, you know, fathers today uh, are always 
vaguely uh, jealous of their kids because the kids get stuff that he never had when he was a kid. And at the same time, they come out with this, you know, this jazz, wow, my kid's not going to have the same problems I had. Oh, boy, he's going to have all the stuff I never could have. Well, uh, you know, they, they, they say that until you get it, which is the way the old man was. You know, he's always, you know, always saying that uh, my kid's going to have all the stuff Chris and I never got any of it. And uh, I remember the day that I went out, that was that, that summer when I was 16, me and Schwartz and Bruner, Flick, and about three other guys, we're all the same age, you see, and, and we're all hung on cars. Every last one of us was a car cuckoo. And we went all around looking. We used to go on a Saturday afternoon and uh, go to used car lots, which is a, you know, great, uh, it's a great kid thing to do. You know, we go up and there's a, there was a, there's a, in fact, do you know where the, the world's capital of used cars is? But a lot of you don't know. Just like, uh, just like, for example, uh, uh, you take you take New York City now. The, the the center of the nation's diamond industry is here in New York. Absolutely, right here. And the center of the nation's garment world is right here in New York. Well, where do you think the center of cars is? Well, I'll tell you. It's Chicago. The center the the, the world's capital of used cars is on a is on a road, a street. Uh, that ran, and it's just not used car lots. These are wholesale guys, everything. You know, they, they sell them all over the world. And there's a street there called Stony Island. And Stony Island is one used car place after the other for miles. I mean, actually miles. I mean, like, you can go five miles, and there's nothing but places where you can buy used conveyances of all types. Used buses. You can buy used boats. Uh, you can buy used freight cars, anything there. There's a fantastic conglomeration of stuff, and they have all these uh, used car auctions. Well, of course, on a Saturday morning, it was a fantastic place to go. Me and Fleck and Schwartz, and we'd hitchhike on our way. You ever do any hitchhiking, Matt? You never did, huh? Well, you know, when you're, when you're a hitchhiker, that's a, that's a, that's a, a form of sport. Uh, I think most guys don't understand the, the, uh, the, the hitchhiking syndrome. I... I hitchhiked from the time I was about uh, 12 to school all the way on up till I was, uh, you know, I was like out of the Army. I was hitchhiking in the Army. Well, hitchhiking is a sport. It isn't done because the guy's cheap. Now, most people think he's, you know, cheap. He Not at all. It's, it's a, it, it gets in your blood. And it's, it's, the, it's the peculiar sense of uh, angling, of... Uh, you never know where the next ride is going to go or who it's going to be or what kind of a car it's going to be. It's just a strange kind of a thing. So we would hitchhike every Saturday morning to Stony Island, which was a good good piece. And we'd get up to Stony, and we'd start on the south end of Stony Island and work our way north. And there were some fantastic used car places. I remember, I, I've always regretted. Have you ever, have you ever, Have you ever had in your soul the regret? Of a car that you didn't buy. Do you ever, do you ever, do you ever think of a car that you didn't buy, Matt? That you would have, that you should have bought. You don't really. Well, there's two of them that I think back in my, you know, back in my used car memories. Two cars that I've regretted that I should have bought. One, of course, this was crazy. We, uh, Flick and I and Schwartz and Bruno one day walking around a used car lot, looking at all the cars, and they, they must have had 5,000 cars out there, when right sitting smack in the middle of all these Chevys and Oldsmobiles and Pontiacs was a Rolls, a tremendous Rolls Royce. Now, this was the limousine type. You know what the limousine type is with the closed back end and the open is, the front is open where the chauffeur sits out the front in the rain. You know, that's the, <laughs> the show... Uh, the real social distinction between the chauffeur and the guy that's sitting in the back. And so the chauffeur sits in the rain. Well, here's the front. This fantastic car was sitting there. It had, a, it had a hood that was 30 feet long. And it was black. I mean, really black. Big wire wheels. And we're walking around this car. Now, we were just kids. Remember this. We were, we were about 16 years old. And we were actually looking for a car to buy. Now, I had some money. Flick had money. Schwartz had money. And that we'd been saving for a couple of years to buy a car, and we could have bought this thing. 
I'll never forget the price of it. It's it's engraved in my head now. It, of course, you never could conceivably buy that same car right now. That very same automobile is probably in somebody's collection and quite probably cost $25,000. But we walked around that car and looked at it, and there it was. A little beauty, Matt, just a little beauty to sneak in there. All right, just a little beauty. I'll never forget the beauty of that car. <laughs> At the, at the moment of, uh, of decision that we had about not getting it. We walked around this car, and she's sitting on the gravel. It was a Saturday morning, and it was getting on, getting on towards winter, because the wind, I remember, was blowing around and kicking up the dust of this used car lot. And Schwartz stood next to this thing, and he stood up on his, like on his back legs, to look into the driver's compartment. This thing was, you know, high. You know how Rolls Royces are. My God, what a car. It had side mounts. Two big wheels mounted in, in wells on the front fenders. Now, you know those, those front fenders they have in these classic rolls with the great sweeping clamshells. You know, those sweeping fender lines. And, and the... The headlights were fared into the fenders, and the fared, streamlined headlights, and that incredible grill. With the sun glinting on that polished chrome of that gothic grill. The Rolls-Royce grill will always stand alone among man's great achievements. It's a very, you notice how, how much it looks like the Parthenon? It does. Imagine the Parthenon in your mind. You know how the Parthenon looks? Well, you might close your eyes as you picture the Parthenon. Just squint, and you could be looking at the grill of a Rolls Royce. Classic, stark, chaste is the word. Yes. Beyond criticism. Beyond, uh, beyond cavil. And sitting right on top of that grill, that sharp, razor-pointed grill, was this magnificent winged victory. You seen the winged victory atop the roll recently? You know, that is victory. With the great wings, carved German silver, catching just the edge of the sunlight watery, late fall sunlight as the wind comes howling down out of the northernmost reaches of Lake Michigan on this cold day in the used car lot world. Whipcord upholstery, tailored. And in the rear tunnel, the compartment where people sit, it had bird's-eye maple desks that folded out of the rear seat. It had a, a map compartment with a tiny yellow light. And a telephone that led from the rear to know to the front. So immediately, Schwartz jumps into the front seat and sits down like he's the driver. Flick gets in the back and says, uh, Take me to uh, Hammond High School, Schwartz. Painted in whitewash, on the glistening windshield was the price. You could see where a little of the whitewash had dripped down onto the hood. Fifty dollars. Cash. when opportunity is knocking. Not really. Man goes through most of his life missing the point. We never bought it. What did we buy? Are you curious? A 
V8 Ford with balsa wood valve and a transmission that had seen 700,000 miles that burnt oil at the rate of four gallons every 10 miles. In fact, we used to have to carry a five-gallon can of oil in the back and just keep pouring it in steady. What did we pay for that clunker? $125. So man always misses the point. And that great rose just sat there, chaste and honest, virginal, classic, casting a long shadow over a Plymouth which squatted obscenely next to it. which incidentally sold immediately for four times the price of the rolls. I don't know where that rolls is today, but I do know where the Ford is today. <laughs> After two seasons, the Ford slowly sank into Flick's backyard as the rains came down and its fenders dissolved into grimy red dust. She slowly sank down among the stickers and the carnation milk cans until eventually all that was left were a couple of springs out of the seats. A deserved ignominious end. And some nights I wake up sweating in sheer terror, dreaming that maybe that's the way the rolls ended too which would be sad, but probably close to life. <laughs> it's a strange show, isn't it? <laughs> well, now, <laughs> you see, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, apologizing for, uh, or uh, even attempting to tell people that they should pollute the atmosphere. But, uh, Nevertheless, uh, the the beauty of a car like that, or of a of a creation of that type, is is uh, is unquestionably a, a thing which uh, which is what you know. Speaking of, of great beauty, I was out in Denver recently, and uh, we were shooting a television show out there. And I I don't know whether you've been in Denver recently, but the Denver's a great city. I think I I, I always I always find that place exciting. Don't you, man? Boy, it's uh, you know just sitting there in the, in that among all those mountains, and, uh, I don't know, just an exciting place. It's a it's a great place to be, and the the sky is so fantastic there. You can just see it stretching endlessly over you. Well, we pulled into Denver there, and Denver has a new airport. It's a real jazzy looking airport, and uh, you know nice new buildings and all that. And I was coming through the airport, and uh, there. It was, it was incredible there, sitting right in the middle of the airport, in the middle of all these plastic things. You know, typical airport. You know how, how airports uh, have a tendency to all look the same. You, in fact, I, I have a picture of me in an airport that somebody took, a friend of mine. I was on a trip with this guy, and he took a picture of me in this airport. And it's a beautiful picture. He has a, he's a great photographer, and it's a, and it's a panoramic picture of the interior of the airport. And he caught me sitting in this uh, seat in the airport, and I had dozed off. And I just sort of slipped off, and there was a bag next to me. And I've got this picture. Well, I show this to people, and I say, where, where was this taken? And they look at it, and almost invariably they say, oh, well, uh, that's the uh, TWA terminal in uh, JFK. I'd say, no, the word is terminal. Ah, come on. I'm from Kentucky. We can always pronounce it terminal. It's the JFK, it's the uh, terminal at TWA. No. You know what was shot? Singapore. Which means that there is an international purgatory called the airport. And wherever you go in the world, the airport looks the same. And invariably, in every airport, there is the car altar. Have you noticed every airport you've been in recently has got a little raised platform, a dais, with a little uh, fence around it. And on the dais is usually a Dodge, <laughs> a Dodge Charger or a, a Pontiac GTO. 
or a Ford Pinto. And people come and they pay homage to this. They uh, they walk through and uh, they stop for a moment. And, uh, you know, it's a little like uh, early, uh, early Catholic uh, uh, methods of... Uh, of uh, paying homage to you. No, I'm serious. I'm not being uh, I'm not being uh, irreligious here because our religion is mobility. And uh, what is more representative of mobility? Either a psychological upward mobility, uh, sociological mobility, and or the physical mobility of a car. It's just like early man celebrated the horse. Have you noticed that uh, much of early sculptor, very early sculptor, is the horse? Why? Well, the horse gave the man freedom, mobility. He can move. And man is a moving creature. And so naturally, we pay homage to the car and to the, to the 747. Well, there in the middle of the Denver airport, beautiful, I couldn't believe it, was a fully restored, it was magnificent. Everybody was looking at it because it... It, 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 there was a certain beauty to the thing, which is now lacking in many of the um, mobile objects that we have. You know, I think that, that one of the things that's happened to uh, beauty and mobility is that we have become projectile conscious. That a projectile doesn't have much other than function to give it its beauty. In other words, if you take a look at a bullet, is it beautiful or is it not? You know, it's a, it's very, it's like an egg. It has a functional beauty because, you know, it moves through the air very rapidly. It's like a rocket. I don't find rockets particularly beautiful. I mean, like a, an Atlas rocket. Technically, it's fascinating, but uh, aesthetically, it's rather sterile because it's built to total function. Now, you know, there was a time when people used to believe that function and beauty went completely together. Not so. Not particularly. I mean, I don't know whether the Parthenon is very functional. Probably a Howard Johnson is more functional, but... <laughs> I'm serious, you know? So, so I don't know, you know? But uh, here, sitting in the middle of the airport in Denver, was a magnificently restored, in the original colors, one of the first mail planes that flew over the Rockies back in the early 1920s. And there she sat. I mean, and it was in flying condition, just beautiful. One of the very few of its type that still remains in the world. And it was in the original, uh, well, they used as, as the color in those days, the airplane's color was a kind of a khaki color, which was the Air Force, or in those days, it was, I guess it was called the Air Force, uh, the Air Services, I don't know what they called it in those days, but it was the U.S. Air Service, which was part in those days, believe it or not, of the Signal Corps. And so here's this beautiful airplane sitting in the biplane, of course, and it had that big open cockpit, and you could smell, you could smell the engine. The engine was absolutely sparkling. It's uh, one of the most cantankerous engines ever devised, by the way, that particular engine. And that particular airplane... And that particular run cost the lives of uh, God knows how many pilots. The airplane was the famous JN-1, Curtis, built by the Curtis Aircraft Company. You know what the JN-1 is? Uh, what, what it was called? The Jenny. You ever hear of a Jenny? Well, the Jenny was called Jenny because it was the JN-1. They just uh, sort of uh, took the name and called it Jenny. And it was a World War I training plane, which after the war was used by the Air Corps and also by the Postal Services as its primary mail delivery plane. There were two planes they used, the DH, the de Havilland, and this magnificent Jenny. And there she sat, khaki-colored. It was strangely ugly and yet strangely beautiful because of the ugliness. Have you ever known a girl that, that uh, who's uh, kind of ugly, really, if you really look at her? And yet she's really beautiful because she is ugly. You know who's like that? A little like that Leslie Caron. Who's not a beautiful girl, and yet she's got a curious quality about her. And so here was this JN4, or JN1, just standing in the middle of all the plastic <laughs> and everything. And, it was, and of course, it's, it's fabric covered, you see. It's covered with this uh, 
this, uh, this aircraft canvas and dope. You could smell the dope. And it, it, it had a quality of being alive, this thing. Curious life to it. There's no smell except kerosene to the outside of a 747. Just stands there. And once you've seen one 747, you've seen them all. Have you ever been able to, de- to, de- to, to recognize an airplane as one that you've originally flown on? In other words, you've taken a lot of flights. Have you ever flown on a flight and said, oh, yes, I was on this very airplane once, this plane. You may recognize a stewardess or something, but you recognize the plane. Now, that's pure function. But you could recognize each individual JN-1 because each one had gotten its own scars over the life that it lived. And walking, walking into that, uh, that, uh, that airport there, smelling that curious smell of dope and oil and leather. This thing had a leather-lined cockpit. The smell of uh, of the rubber tires on this thing, these big tires standing down there on that, that uh, looked like Monsanto tile floor with the wire wheels. And the people all walked around and looked at this. I heard one guy say to another guy, was that one of them planes that the Red Baron flew? <laughs> Poor Red Baron. <laughs> He's blamed for everything these days. <laughs> and uh, by the way, uh, the one thing they never said during the time of the Red Baron, in case you're curious, was curse you, Red Baron. Because uh, the Red Baron, among other things, was considered a highly gallant pilot. And uh, all the pilots, both the foes and the people who flew with him, had great respect for him. And then when he was finally shot down, he was given full military honors by the enemy. And they dropped notes uh, over his aerodrome. Uh, pictures and the whole thing about it. You know where his, his, uh, his tomb is now? The Red Baron? Well, it's in Berlin. It's in the Russian zone, just on the other side of the wall. Just on the other side. In fact, it's right at the base of the famous Russian wall. And it just stands and all it says on it is Richthofen. That's all it says. It doesn't have to say anymore. It's just there. <laughs>